Welcome back to the Black Lives Texas podcast, a project from the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. I'm your host for this week, Tracy Lowe. On this episode, we have a panel of guests discussing what it means to be a woman in the Black middle class. I am joined by Dr. Tiffany Tillis-Lewis, Assistant Vice President for Academic Equity at E.T. Austin. Brandilyn Franks-Flunder, Director of the Multicultural Engagement Center at UT Austin, and Dr. Chris March, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland. We sat down to have an honest and frank conversation about our personal and professional lives. We also discussed everything from work and families to home purchases and side hustles. Let's jump into our discussion. Welcome to the Black Lives Texas podcast. Uh, I know this is early, <laughs> but I appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I'm just going to get started by letting you all uh, briefly introduce yourself and just tell me a bit about your background. Uh, my name is Brandilyn Flunder, and I am a um, two-time graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I graduated in 2007 with my bachelor's degree in 2000. 13 with my master's degree, um, both in uh, the master's degrees in educational leadership policy. Um, I have been married for 11 years to my wonderful husband, um, and I'm mother to four um, very active boys. Um, two of them are twins. Um, I hail from a very small town in Southeast Texas called Orange. Um, the population is about 17,000 at this point, but the little suburb-ish because how can there be a suburb of a small town, um, was about 5,000 uh, folks. So I came to UT and it was definitely a culture shock as far as uh, population was concerned. But I um, grew up in a two-parent household. Both of my parents worked um, back in my hometown. Uh, kind of the ascension to the middle class was through working at plants if you didn't have a professional degree. And so um, my father worked at a um, paper plant and my mama was a, um, or, yeah, was because she retired, um, a paraprofessional in one of the local school districts. Um, I am a first generation college student, although I didn't really um, take on that identity until much later, actually as, a, as an administrator, um, simply because both of my parents, they actually met in college, so they went to college, however, they didn't graduate. Um, and my grandfather um, was a graduate of Oklahoma State University. And so I never really saw myself as a first uh, generation college student because of the um, opportunities that I had just, you know, with having grandparents and parents that um, at least attended college. I can relate to the whole first-gen story because my mother never finished college, but my grandmother has a master's. So I kind of was like, eh, am I? I don't know. Um, so anyway, I'm Tiffany Lewis, and I um, work at the University of Texas at Austin. I am an assistant vice president um, for academic equity uh, within the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement. I am a Longhorn and I bleed orange through and through. You know, I have all three of my degrees from there. Um, it wasn't on purpose or by design. It was just kind of accident. Life circumstance happened where I didn't get to leave Austin. And so I said, while I'm here, I'm going to get educated. Um, but I am from a small town as well, um, which is east of Austin, um, Taylor, Texas. Um, so it's kind of like the what you imagine when people talk about small towns it was a very white town 
Um, so the railroad tracks, black living on one side, whites living on the other mm-hmm. was a thing for us. However, in our community, we were considered middle class because my grandmother was an educator. Um, so she taught in the segregated schools um, until desegregation. And then after desegregation, she was recruited to come into the ISD. So she and one other black teacher were recruited to come in and teach, which kind of put us in a middle class um, category. My grandfather um, was a uh, mechanic. Um, So they raised me. Uh, My mother had me as a teenage parent. Um, She was 16 years old, not in a position to really (laughs) do a whole lot. So my grandmother and my grandfather took me in and those were my parents until um, my mother was able to come back and get us uh, when she was, you know, mature enough to take care of children. Um, I am a wife. Uh, I have a husband. I have two children. My oldest is 20. I can hardly believe that. And my youngest is five. <laughs> so, you know, uh, these days are interesting. Um, not getting a whole lot of sleep. And, you know, she's testing me. Uh, my youngest is a little girl. Uh, <laughs> see, what else? Um, did I miss anything, Tracy? It's just whatever you want to, to share. I think, I think that's it. You know, yeah. um, you know, I enjoy Tracy and Brandy both. Nice to meet you, Dr. Mm-hmm. Marsh. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Well, I am Chris Marsh, and I'll tell you a little bit about myself. And I appreciate that you all both kind of talked about your undergraduate experience. I don't get a chance to always talk about that, so I appreciate being able to talk about that. So my parents are, I, I come from a middle class background, and I struggled for a long time actually saying middle class. Hopefully we can get a chance to talk about, like, you know, being black and middle class and using that term and what it really means and how you might ostracize yourself, because I struggle with that. But I'm at a point where I'm able to just kind of um, – I use it and I just I just go with it so it was a foregone conclusion I was going to college my father went to college my mother went to a junior college and so my parents were like you're going to college the the only question is what college are you going to and my parents said if we and they were paying for my education they paid for my undergraduate experience and so they said if you go to college we get to pick the major and you can pick the university or you pick the university and we get to pick the major and my parents are entrepreneurs they have real estate they've had real estate for years and so I decided I was going to pick San Diego State. I'm from Los Angeles, from the West Coast, and I picked San Diego State, and they picked my major, and they majored. I majored in business, and I absolutely hated business. In fact, I'm smart, and I, and, I, and I do well, but when I got to San Diego State, my first semester, I was like, I just hate business, and I stopped going to classes. So after my first year, I was on academic probation. And so I was like, oh, Chris, you smart. Get yourself together. Go ahead and go back in the, in the spring semester and pull your grades up and blah, blah, blah. Well, I realized I really didn't like business and didn't stop going to class again. I was academically disqualified from the university after the first year. And this was back in the stone ages when they didn't have like internet. So I literally mm-hmm. pulled out the dictionary to make sure I knew what disqualified meant. I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm just disqualified from this major, correct? No, I was disqualified from the university. And my parents were paying for my education. So I called my parents and I was like, listen, I want to be adult. Stop paying for me. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to pay for my schooling myself. I could not have my parents paying for a schooling if I wasn't there. So I got a job. I went to a community college and I took a sociology course. And there was a professor there. I believe his name was Philip Gay. I don't remember now. This is years ago. And he said to me, he's like, you know, Chris, you really get sociology. You should get a PhD in sociology. I was like, what's a PhD? How do you spell that? I come from a line (laughs) of business people. I don't even know what that is. What are you talking about? And the rest is history. 
Yeah. Um, and I guess and I should it, say something about. Go ahead. No, and I just think like it's important because some people don't want to talk about their experiences. They want to think that you had like this really great path to being a professor. And I'm like, listen. There's a whole bunch of different ways here. And I have no problems talking about my experience. If it will help any of your listeners, I have no problems talking about it. Some people will never tell that. And I'm like, I have no problems at all. I am from Dallas, Texas, from, from Oak Cliff, Texas, actually, which a lot of people know as the lower income area of Dallas. So I grew up in, in a city and I had both parents in the household until I was nine. So I would, I would consider that we were middle class uh, because my mom, she worked with the federal government at the VA for a, uh, a long time. And my dad was, he worked at um, a fabric, a fabric plant. So they were, um, my mom had a little bit of college education and my dad didn't. So I was first generation. And like you all, I didn't know I was first generation until later on in life. So, um, it's interesting that you two come from small town, you and Brandy, uh, Brandy and Tiffany, that you come from small towns. Cause we were, we were looking at, looking at rural, um, black communities and rural areas and the work on that in terms of Ricky, who's, who's our host, our other host, but he said this could be just a, a, a woman talk today. Um, but I went to, I did the opposite of Tiffany and I went to A&M <laughs> for undergrad and master's. And, and we met up at UT, so I guess I, I found the right track, Tiffany, maybe after, yeah, after you, you so came, many you years. Yeah, you came to your senses. <laughs> I came to my senses. So again, still predominantly white institutions, um, but definitely an experience in terms of just being on campus and seeing what it means to be um, one of the only black people on campus being from Dallas and just not knowing stuff. So that's just a little bit about my background. But my my I guess my thoughts on like, middle class and what is middle class kind of leads me to this next question of how you all define black middle class like what does it mean to you in terms of what it means is it cultural behaviors it's just how do you interpret and kind of define that concept for yourself I think for me it's been a challenge because you know I mentioned you know my history with my mom being a teenage mother and so for me I have I felt like I was moving in and out of middle class, right? So when my grandmothers had me, you know, I lived very much so a middle class um, life. But when we went back to be with our mom, when she was able to care for us, uh, it was not middle class, right? And so I've been able to move back and forth. And so for me, it means something different. Um, and so I don't really have a, a good definition because, because my experience is a little, uh, you know, just untraditional, right? Or a little orthodox. But when I talk just in general about middle class, for me, I tend to think white collar, uh, educated class. Um, so that's just kind of my simple definition of what it means. But for me personally, it just means something very different. And just like Dr. Marsh, you know, I feel sometimes a little embarrassed to say um, that or consider myself middle class because I've been not a part of the middle class right so it's that whole you know just in my own head just thinking like you know i don't to me that hierarchy is problematic um especially when i think about the communities that i come from um i just don't like using it and so that's kind of where i am with that um but to me when i think about others and black middle class i think most of them are you know in white collar jobs and also um are educated and what I mean, what I mean by educated, I mean is I mean college educated. 
Yeah. 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 It's funny. I asked my husband last night um, while I was telling him, reminding him, you know, that I was going to be recording for the podcast today and told him what the topic was. And he was like, are we middle class? And I was like, are we not middle class? I don't know. Why wouldn't you think that we were middle class? And he was just like, I, I guess I never really thought about it. I, I think that I've kind of yeah. not wanted to be and it didn't that didn't resonate with me at all. Um, because I come from a very solidly middle class background um, from like I said, my grandparents who also did real estate, my grandfather actually just sold off like his last house last year. Um, he's 87 years old and he was done, you know, messing with it. Um, we traveled every single sun, um, summer, you know, we um, we went to museums, you know, like we had all this access to all this different capital when I was growing up. My mom, and the only reason I wasn't in one of these organizations was because I was from a small town. My grandmother was president of Jack and Jill, you know, in, in Tulsa, where my mama is from. My mama grew up, you know, in that um, as well. Like I said, went to a small town. My grandfather, my oh, my, my paternal grandfather um, also worked at a plant. My grandmother was a stay-at-home mom. You know, they did the same thing. They vacationed. They did all these things. These two people then came together and then gave me like this very solid middle-class background. Um, and so I, it, honestly, it wasn't until I got to college one, I didn't really know that I was middle class. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, we did stuff, but like we did stuff. You know, I knew that when I was growing up that a lot of people didn't do stuff, but that was just, that's just who, you know, what we did. But it wasn't until I got to college that there seemed to be, you know, anything derogatory about being middle class. And so I had to step back because I was definitely acting, I guess, in a way that was, um, could be persecutory for other people. Um, so, you know, I, I at that time I didn't know like what bougie meant or anything like that, but I guess it was that, like those kind of types of things were happening. Um, having to realize again, that people weren't doing the same things that we were doing. So I had to monitor how I was asking questions and, you know, um, who uh, and how I was talking to people about what they did over the summer, or what they were gonna be doing for spring break or whatever it was. And so I think that when I think about middle class again i don't have a solid definition but i think about it as just access to opportunities without as much sacrifice because i know that you know lower class people do things but it's with great sacrifice and we didn't have to sacrifice as much to have access to the opportunities um that we had and so um so yeah like i said it was when i got older that i that i realized that not everybody had the same access that i did and so it, it made me temper you know, my actions a whole lot because I was trying to be sensitive to the fact that um, other people didn't have the same experiences as me. Well, so I think my my definition fits somewhere in between those two definitions and those explanations, and, and those were great. I want to give a two-part answer. I want to talk briefly about this whole notion about, like, talking about being middle class and identifying yourselves as middle class. And I was as I was saying at the opening is that I had a problem saying that for the longest time because partly because of personal experiences because like I said my parents were paying for my education I got an allowance going through school and I remember a friend of mine told said to me she said um do you even feel like the, the degree is yours because your parents are paying for your tuition they're paying for they're giving you an allowance so the degree is really your your parents it's not really yours 
And I was like, no, because I'm the one that's in class or should have been in class. Um, so I actually, so it really was, in fact, my degree. And once she said that, I started saying, like, you know, I don't want to tell people about my experience because I may not feel authentically black because she may have a very unique view of what blackness is. But then I was like, no, 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 au contraire. I was like, black America is not a monolithic. You do have people that are eating sugar sandwiches for dinner, and I'm not taking anything away from them. But you also have people that live a very middle class lifestyle. So I had to learn to embrace it because if you just have one narrative about black America, it's not the it's not a full a full swath of what Amer- black America is. So that's why I'm much more inclined to use the term black middle class because I want to make sure our people understand that there's not a monolithic. We're not a monolithic. There is variation. And let's talk about the variation. A lot of scholars spend a lot of their time talking about the black poor and how, you know, their high unemployment, um, single single child birth, single parent birth, single family, um, high drug use, poverty area, all this stuff, all these negative kind of aspirations, right? But they don't talk enough about the other side. So most of my work really talks about the other side, which gets, which gets to the second part of the question I want to answer. How do you define the black middle class? So now I, have a t- I tend to talk. So I'll be in the grocery store talking to somebody and be like, yeah, I'm a sociologist and I do work on the black middle class. And the, the, the question I usually always get back from people is like, how much do I have to make to be middle class? So they think it's just numbers and they think it's just income and I'm like I'm so glad you asked so 30 minutes later (laughs) but the one thing that's really important about the work that I do is that you have to have some kind of wealth indicator and you have to own a home you've got to have some assets you have to have something and especially think about this current climate that we're in when stuff like COVID hits although you might feel like you're middle class if you don't have some assets to fall back on COVID is going to hit you disproportionately harder than it's going to hit somebody else so the work that I do when I mean middle class I include a wealth measure now most of my work comes from national data sets and I use census data so a proxy for wealth in most cases could be home ownership so the work that I do if you want to be middle class you have to own a home now I'm not putting a value judgment on it people may not want to own homes may want to do other things but because I'm trying to establish that there's a growth of people that are single and living on the black middle class that's one of the key measures that I use when I define middle class. So uh, all of those definitions is like it had me thinking about um, just my experiences growing up because when there was a two parent household, it's like my mom wasn't educated, um, but they were able to send me to private school. So like Brandy was talking about access to opportunities, but then I think I was like at the same time my mom wasn't able to get us into a house. I think until after the after the divorce, but also she was now single mom so it just it's just like well like tiffany now i'm like was i going in and out of what could be defined as black middle class with all these definitions so i just appreciate all of your answers and 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 i know both brandy and tiffany and and chris you all talked about this kind of uh resistance to to saying that you're black middle class or or maybe changing your actions brandy um around other people talk to me Talk to me about that and talk to me about how you've seen that within yourself, but maybe within other people, because I'm particularly thinking about the black populations of students at UT and just some of the things that I've, I've observed with them. Yeah, I will say that even in my own household, you know, my husband um, did not. He, he's definitely from um, a different class, you know, than I was. And so the way that we approach life and our marriage and money, you know, is completely different. Um, And so we have to have real conversations, like I said, even in my household, and maybe it prepares me to have those conversations with other people, but we have those conversations. I, you know, I think about money, it was always there. It was never a question. It was, um, it, we, we, 
yeah, we own two homes, you know, like those types of things. Like I didn't, if I, if something happened here, I would just go and live in my mama's other house. You know, it, it was always a thing that I could, that I could do that I could fall mm -hmm. back on. Um, when I got into credit card debt, when I was you know first coming out of, uh, out of college, my grandparents just paid it off and said, don't do that again. You know, it was, it just never had that, those types of issues. Um, where with him, um, he didn't come from that, you know, and so the way that we approach our budgets and the way that we approach, you know, how we're running our household, I think is definitely has found itself in our backgrounds um, in in the access and not knowing if we're going to have continued access. So he's a little bit more um, timid when it comes to um, to things that um, that may or may not pan out where I'm just like, let's just do it, because if something happens, you know, we'll figure it out. You know, my um my father passed away a few years ago and my mama is still doing pretty good. You know, it definitely changed things, but for me to be in a position to help my mom so that she can maintain her lifestyle um, because of, you know, the loss of income has been, um, has been pretty amazing as well. So I think that, you know, again, when talking to students, it, it's, I've made a lot of assumptions for sure about what students can and can't do or, you know, um, how many as, as a director and a center, you know, I get to set pay scales, I get to set hours, I get to set all of those different things and um, having to really think about, you know, the students that are coming in um, and what they can do and what they can't do and other, you know, mitigating factors that they're, um, that they're experiencing. Um, and at the same time, I think that again, because of my background and the bias that I, I probably still have, um, I also don't want to look at students, you know, with a deficit mindset either. So it's like, it's always, it's this constant negotiation of, you know, I don't want to quote unquote render you, you know, deficient, but at the same time, I need to be more sensitive to the, the, the things that you may possibly be going through. So for me, it's constant, um, especially as I'm working with students um, and what their opportunities are and, you know, the position that I'm in to give them access to greater opportunities, but not wanting to limit them or cripple them or just, it, it's, it's definitely, um, again, it's definitely a constant negotiation when I'm talking with other, other people. Um, I think that's a great comment. Uh, and I, just to add to that, so I teach a class on the black middle class. And the first thing I ask students, like, why are we teaching a class on the black middle class? Why isn't it just on middle class? And then we talk about, you know, different racial ethnic groups. And because we also have to understand the racism that exists in America. So it can't just be a middle class discussion. It's got to be specifically to the black middle class, because even though you're talking about your class status, you have to contextualize it in this racial context. And so one of the conversations that we have in class, and I try to get students to think, and I, and, and, and I too sometimes like thinking about these biases that we have, there's this whole notion about conspicuous consumption, right? And so that means that people are buying like the big houses, the big cars, the expensive shoes, the iPhone 12, 13, 14, that's costing $2,000, <laughs> costing you as much as a computer at this point. But these are small things that people can do to kind of signal their class status, especially if they don't have like this intergenerational wealth that some of us are kind of talking about. And so... We often put a value judgment on them. We judge them like, how dare them? We don't, they can't afford that. Mm -hmm. And maybe they can or maybe they can't. We're not actually in their checkbook, so we really don't technically know. And why are you assuming because they black, they can't afford that iPhone 25? Second, I think that it's also really important that we understand that sometimes that's all they have. They can't buy themselves a $500,000 house. The only thing that they have to, to signal their social class status is that iPhone. So who are we to judge them? But I think we do it. 
I think students do it. And and and, and we I usually give the examples like if somebody comes comes to my class with a seven a seven eleven coffee cup versus a Starbucks, you'd be like. Ooh, 7-Eleven. We turn our nose down on 7-Eleven. Mm. 7-Eleven coffee is better than Starbucks, but it's 99 cents. Starbucks yep. coffee is $5, so you're like, ooh, they got Starbucks coffee. And I think we get, need to get to a place where that kind of stuff does not matter, but we're not there yet. And in black America, getting back to my initial point, where racism exists, they're doing this. Some people are doing the best that they can. They're using these small markers to signal their status, and it's not up for us or anybody else to judge them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, um... And I like the way you say you teach the class about the black middle class and then in the context of race. So for this podcast, I specifically invited all black women because I feel that there is a unique experience for black women who are middle class. And so I can't say what that experience is for you all, but I would I like to kind of negotiate that conversation just to talk about if you felt there are even just differences navigating as a black woman who's black middle class in terms of the way people perceive us or just just kind of have a conversation about that. I always say that I feel like I have to throw my weight around sometimes um, in different contexts. You know, so when I think of my, my child goes to a Montessori, um, it's a public Montessori, but it's a Montessori non- nonetheless. And so it's a different educational experience um, than what even what I had in a, a public ISD. Um, and there are definitely times when, you know, I, I'm, and I, I mean, I have a master's degree, like these PhD folks, one day, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. But, you know, when I'm within those spaces, I feel like there is definitely an assumption that because the school is for, um, it's for underserved students um, to have access to high quality education. We kind of eked in because they were looking for diversity because of the way that it's situated right now. Um, it, it's situated within a school district that typically in, in past years, you know, was um, historically black, but has been greatly gentrified. And so, you know, the, the students that are represented um, in the population don't look like us. And so we kind of eked in with uh, on the diversity slant. Fine. When I get there, the perception I feel is that um, I am not middle class, that I'm not educated or that, you know, whatever it is. And so um, I feel like I have to like throw my weight around a little bit and kind of get them told that like, no, you know, I, I have the credentials, I have the knowledge, you know, no, we don't qualify for free lunch. Please stop pestering me about filling out this form because I know that we don't qualify for free lunch. Um, and again, it's, I also feel like I am taking on the burden of the black mothers who don't have the same access um, in saying, I shouldn't have to mention to you my credentials. I shouldn't have to mention to you, you know, that I know this person or that I know that person or that I'm very clear about this educational system because you should be treating all of us, you know, as, as equal. You should be treating us all as if we are invested in our children's education. And so I think that just as being black middle class, um, which again, I love that it's black middle class because I never really thought about it in the like racial, <laughs> in a racial context, um, that I feel a burden. I feel a burden to be like a spokesperson almost for for everyone, for the people who are my class, who are people who are, you know, in a different class than I am, whether that's lower or higher. Um, be, because again, because of access. And so um, I don't know, I feel like I'm just continuing as we're like talking about it, just listening, and especially with Dr. Marsh, like listening to how we're negotiating all these things. But I definitely think that it's um, not wanting to 
project too much, but also not wanting them to think that you can, you know, just get over me because of the color of my skin. So again, it's back and forth every single time. Two things. Um, yes, there is a burden of being a black woman. I was like, I wouldn't trade nothing in the world for being a black woman. I was like, it ain't easy. Mm-hmm. It ain't easy. But I, ain't, I ain't giving my womanhood and my blackness back. I ain't giving that back. But it is a it is a challenge. And once you drop a little middle class into that, you actually complicate the story a little bit further. And, mm-hmm. and it, I think all of us do it. And I think we, you said it best. You know, we really kind of like have to put our markers out there. We have to put our class status, like kind of mark our class status. I don't go anywhere without my Rolex. I got to wear my mm-hmm. Rolex because it's going to make a difference. I am have to make sure in some spaces, oh, it's going to be, Dr. Marsh, I'm dropping my pedigree because I teach, I train officers on implicit bias. I walk uh. in, you ain't, you ain't going to call me Chris. It's going to be Dr. Marsh the entire day, but I'm not that person, but I'm short in stature. I'm five feet tall. I'm a black woman. I'm like, I got to come in there. I've got to come heavy hitting, you know, and I'm care. I'm, I am, and you know, I am from LA. So I'm wearing my red bottoms. I'm carrying my Gucci purse. I'm rolling the Rolex. I was like, you got, cause see, there's a whole notion from the social psychologist, um, Steele. I can't think of his first name. Claude still, I think that, don't quote me on that. And he talks mm-hmm. about whistling Vivaldi, where you have to kind of like, when you're running or in your neighborhood, you want to whistle Vivaldi, which is like a classical uh, song, because you want to signal to white folks and other folks that you've got the class status. I deserve to be here. But I'm yeah. in a space where I've been sitting in COVID for over a year and a half, and all that trying to signaling, I'm done with that. I am here. I'm a tenured professor at the University of Maryland. The fact that I'm here, the fact that I can embrace my blackness, my womanness, and I can be very professional, I've signaled to the, all the little black girls that you can be me, and I signal to all the little white kids in class and all my white colleagues that I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So I don't have to do that anymore. Um, they get to a place where you just get tired and it gets exhausted. And you're like, I'm just not going to do this anymore. And now that I'm tenured, I don't have to. But at some point, you have to kind of make that pivot. you like, I, mm, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But at, the, but at the end of the day, even though it doesn't matter to you, if you want to be embraced by the larger community, you still have to continue to do some of those markers. If you want to be embraced by the larger community. That's the question. That's true. I feel like I'm in a constant negotiation, a constant state of performing, you know, especially yeah. when I'm outside of my house. And so, you know, when I think about even going on a shopping trip, if I decide I'm going to go to Neiman's, I'm like, oh, I got to be like, I got to be together. You know, I can't, I can't go in there slipping or, you know, I may ex- not experience the type of service I think that I deserve or that other people get. Um, even, you know, interviewing. So I'm thinking about, you know, possibly being on the job market. You know this, Tracy, we talk about this. And, you know, just thinking that I got to be 10 times, you know, re- better right or qualified in order to step into that role that other people probably aren't negotiating but as a black middle class woman you got to go in there and establish yourself as someone who's already an expert in whatever it is you're trying to do and then on top of that what more are you going to bring to the organization and so I just feel like in my life how I negotiate my gender and my blackness is that I'm always in a constant state of performing and it's exhausting right and so here's the thing though Right, right, right. Well, here's the thing, though, Tiffany. I kind of feel like wear what you want to wear because they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna size you up regardless. So mm-hmm. wear your, wear your little leggings and your sweatshirt versus like you know your 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 nice designer dress because they're gonna the your in some ways the markers don't really even matter at some point. Mm-hmm. And so then you, then it becomes even more frustrating if you did you put on your Sunday best mm-hmm. and you still got poor treatment. So at least right. you're comfortable in your Lulu overpriced Lululemon pants for the poor treatment you get ready to get. <laughs> but Dr. Marsh, you're in a position where you have established or you've you've earned your tenure. You know, as an administrator, you know, as someone who aspires to be 
maybe in a presidency somewhere, you know, I feel like for me, I, 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 I can't. I can't come in right. there with my like. Even today, I got on a whole y'all look comfortable. I got a whole dress on because I didn't know it's cute. You know, <laughs> I got on a onesie. It was gonna be video. I'm like, Lord, I don't know who's gonna watch this. Let me come together. Yeah. In case one day they uh, pull this out the vault and be like, Look at Dr. Lewis uh, <laughs> like, twenty years from now. You know what I'm saying? That's so, right. Yeah. Um, I just feel like, you know, I would love to go in there with my, look, my, my chucks, because I love to wear chucks, my little blue jean jacket and, and whatnot, but it's just not where I am. And that is exhausting, like feeling like I can't be who I really am, right, in order to try to um, break down some of these, these glass ceilings, you know, so I just feel exhausted. And COVID, like, I'm glad you mentioned that, because it really has helped me reflect and just come to some type of a, uh, I don't know, a balance. I don't know. I feel much, I've had time to reflect on, you know, the things that I'm not going to do anymore. Um, like I'm, this rat race of always being on and having to say yes to everything. I'm not doing that no more. It was unsustainable. I was unhealthy and I just don't want to go back. But there are some things that I feel like I don't have the agency to really do. You know, if that makes sense. And that is real. And that is sincere. And I, and I was saying, like, you know, I am tenured, so I do have a little bit of flexibility where I can do some of these some of these things that you may not be able to do or you have aspirational goals. I'm like, if I, if I am promoted to full professor, which I think I will because of the book that I'm writing, I think that will get me there. But I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sacrifice kind of like being my authentic self anymore. I did that for six years mm-hmm. until I was tenured. I was like, I'm getting full like this. Either you're going gonna, gonna to promote me like this or you're not. Either way, I'm going to be real happy and content with me. Yes. And that's what's really important for me at this at this space in my career. And I envy yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And it's refreshing. <laughs> it is refreshing. But on the flip side, because I want to make sure that I say this everywhere I go, I make sure that I say this. I also see my therapist every Monday at every morning, every Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Mental health is real. Black folks, black women need to have a mental health therapist. If you are eating or if you are eating organic foods or if you're trying to you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, <laughs> if you're trying to work out, why are you not talking to someone about your mental health? We don't talk about it enough. And I want to just go on record giving a public a public announcement for mental health and how black feet black people in particular black women should all have a therapist okay yeah Yeah. so tiffany you i've talked to both you and brandy about conversations because i i I guess i'm aspiring because i have everything but the home ownership which even even negotiating that and negotiating the workspace to get enough pay to you know to be able to move into that space so Mm -hmm. like tiffany i do have aspirations but then it's it's been interesting to kind of negotiate like, okay, how do I move to these spaces that I want to be in, remain in the skin I'm in without having like all of the added stress and the burden that you talked about, Brandy? It's like, is that even possible? And so those are the the types of things I think about as I negotiate UT, which is is a white institution and, and we're, we're dealing with systematic stuff. And you're dealing with black folks and white people. And, you know, they're both looking at you kind of like, well, you know, you, respectability politics, you know, like, why are you coming in here looking like that? Um, what are you doing to promote yourself? What are you doing extra? And it's like, I get frustrated with the, why do I have to do extra? But like Tiffany, like you were saying, you have to do extra. And Brandy, like, like we've talked about, you know, you know, I've had several 
you know, personal frustrated conversations with you about like how hard it is to just to just be able to move up into middle class. And then I'm even thinking about like the discomfort of saying like I aspire to move up into to the middle class with all the markers. Like again, not wanting to say that either. Just it's just a lot going on. Yeah, I you know, again as you all were kind of talking, I think about two that I have I feel like I have a just a varied experience. Um I think that I have maybe too much embraced this idea of um of leisure <laughs> and you know thinking about like you know my grandmother or thinking about my um the, the just other women in my life who like had to work really really hard to get you know like the work twice as hard to get half as far and things like that or you know even you know with tiffany like wanting having aspirations to be like this high-ranking administrator like i'm cool and i'm okay with being cool but sometimes i feel the pressure from to be honest, other black women who are like, no, like we gotta get this. Like you've you've gotta go here, you've gotta do this. If I can do it, you can do it. And I'm like, but I don't want to. Like I'm okay mm-hmm. with you, you know, and it's um it, it feels like there is that there can be some pressure um as well as a black woman because it's like I've you know I've I've paved the way for you. Like I've done the work, you know, we have to do this as a community. We have to show whomever we're having to show, we have to show white men that we actually, you know don't receive the mediocrity. We have to show black women that you can do this. I'm going to set the example for you. And so it's also been kind of hard for me because, you know, my my husband makes good money. So that's going to keep us, you know, it feels like it's going to keep us Um, like I'm doing, you know, pretty well money wise, but it's like the, the, the idea to ascend is not, um, interesting to me right now because where I am right now gives me the leisure. It gives me the opportunity to go to New Orleans for five days and not have to like, you know, put out a whole lot of fires in a way that if I were, you know, a, a director of diversity at a like high level, I couldn't do that. I, I, I could, but it would be very hard. And so, you know, I get to do that or I get to you know, like even in COVID, spend more time with my kids who drive me absolutely bonkers. However, I've been able to spend more time with them. We're able to like just kind of take off and do these things that people before me may not have been able to do because they had to be in the streets, pounding the pavement all the time. And so it's been, it's just been interesting, especially being around super successful women and looking up to them. I look up to, you know, the folks on this call, I look up to like, these other people who are in these um, high levels and we're like all connected, like Tiffany knows all of them. And, you know, and I look at them and I'm like, that is amazing and not something that I'm really interested in. And so having to, you know, talk to other women about women again, who are like, but we believe in you. And I'm like, that's great. And I believe in myself (laughs) too, but right now I'm cool. And so I think that that also is something too, like it's again, the pressure of, um, of, of wanting, you know, more because I'm supposed to want more because I didn't have the opportunities back in the 1920s or I, I was really, really fighting in the 1960s. And in 2021, I'm like, I'm good. You know, like this is this is cool with me. So I don't want to discount anything that you're saying. And but so I'm getting ready to <laughs> just count what you said. I'm not going to discount. I, I just think like 
the way and I hear what you're saying and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you wherever you are as long as your mental health is good I'm good I'm really about promoting mental health and quality of life if you're cool I think you said coolness if you're away with your cool with your coolness right now do that I try to promote I um try to promote um uh people getting a side women in particular getting a side hustle something that you enjoy to do get paid for your side hustle and I'm not saying like and I, I'm not saying you need to be a pro- university professor uh, uh, a president you need to be an administration I'm not talking about the academic route I'm not talking about institutional kind of stuff do something for you that you own that you craft that'll get you up when then people in the institution getting on your nerves yeah. and acting a fool and you have to deal with the microaggressions like pivot working on my hustle my hustle bring me some money my hustle got me a Rolex my hustle got me two condos in one year get your own hustle because that's going to make you feel so good. Whatever it is. If your own hustle is making, is making um, cupcakes, sell your little cupcakes to people in your network. I will buy some. But I think what happens is we spend so much of our time in this institution. The institutions will eat us up and spit us out and, we'll have, and we will die in these places. They will have a job interview. They will have our job posted mm-hmm. before the end of the night. One of my, I was talking to my girlfriend last night. They said they did it to one of her girlfriends in um, – her institution uh-huh. they sent out a message a sad message you know so sorry that jane doe died you know please you know keep her keep her family in your prayers three hours later they had her job posted so get your own hustle not because you're trying to not because you know you're trying to get these middle class markers but it's really going to help you to kind of balance out the way in which these institutions use you my hustle like i said has paid me very very well but my newest hustle talking about leisure activity i decided to take up golf Golf, I never thought I would like golf. It's really, really fun. You got to do it. Um, so now I've decided that because as I've started golfing, I noticed that there's race, class, and gender dynamics on the golf course. I'm getting ready to write mm-hmm. me a book about golf, the race, class, and gender, gender dynamics of golf. Um, why do we golf? The perceptions and motivations of middle-class golfers, middle-class black golfers. So every time I'm on the course doing golf, University of Maryland got to pay me to collect data. I know University of Maryland don't give a Mm, is this a is this a, a G rated show? X rated, PG rated? Yeah. <laughs> don't say what you gotta say, and then you can think about it and ask them to edit it. <laughs> yeah. you know, I know that the University of Maryland doesn't give a darn about me, and so because mm. of that, I was like, I gotta find stuff that works for me, and so I, the golfing really works for me. And then one one last point I want to like make because uh, uh, Tracy, you were talking about like homeownership. It's like you know where do you get started and all this kind of stuff, and you know the whole process. The whole process can be very daunting, and as a black person in this free air quote in this free housing market it's problematic so sometimes like you know you don't have the good you don't have the best credit score we know that's racist you don't have the best down payment we know there's a whole huge wealth disparity that exists in america when i was going to buy my house in prince george's county which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country for black folks all my colleagues told me i should live in silver spring it's more inter it's more um diverse but prince george's county is predominantly black i actually I, I was new to the area so i asked people for a real estate agent someone gave me this white woman and so she looked at my credit score she looked at um um something else and i had a down payment my parents gave me a hundred thousand dollars cash money down payment so she was like aren't you spoiled so needless to say she was fired by the end of that day i was like i'm sorry what did you just say i was like first of all i was like yeah so she had a perception of what black people should be and the fact that i had an 800 credit score the fact that i was bringing a check a certified check for hundred thousand dollars she was just like i'm having a problem with you know this cognitive dissonance like you're just spoiled i was like and you're fired <laughs> so even if you come to the even if you come to the process with all of the markers possible that indicate middle class status we have to we can't ignore the conversation about the racial context and how the black experience 
is modified by race in America. The black middle class experience is modified by race. Yeah. I was, I don't know where I got this from. I was reading or listening to another podcast and they were saying something about like, even for high earning black folk, right? That in many cases, they still don't have access to the upper echelon of, you know, home ownership, neighborhoods, uh, because of that uncontrollable factor of racism, right? Like you could come with your 800 credits for your $100,000 check. And depending on who that real estate is, they may be driving you somewhere that, you know. A pigeonholed into certain areas. Yeah. 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 And, so, then, and then to take it one step further, then when you get to the mm-hmm. bank, I'm getting a higher interest rate. And I got, I got yeah. like perfect credit. Right. And mm-hmm. we know that happens over and over again. The literature tells us that. Right. Yeah. So not yeah. to scare you, Tracy. I mean, it's still possible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, no. But I'm just saying. <laughs> It's different. Yeah. I, I mean, I've talked to a real estate agent and then I've also been steeped in the literature. Um, and that's one of the reasons I, I contacted you, Chris, is because you you do you do work on the black middle class. And then you look at so many different facets, like the, the, the single and living alone adults and thinking about relationships. That That's the piece, of course. I'm thinking about housing and relationships because as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, yeah, as an aspiring black middle class woman, educated all these different markers like all of the narratives that people black and white you know you don't if you have children before you're married or, or if you're young and it's, it puts a whole different perception on it so it just has me thinking like how much of this has seeped into my soul to where you know the the singleness the narratives and all of that stuff are blocking me from opportunities and things that i want to do uh i mean so yeah there's a lot going on but yeah i'm still still trying to get to the house but i gotta get the job that'll pay enough for me to get the house and save up for a down payment so there you go yeah so one of the things the work that I, some of the work that i do besides the, the my now golfing work that i do and the work that i did in uh, south africa on the black middle class because uh you know when we think about south africa we often think about like apartheid we think about hiv we think about famine but we don't talk enough about middle class. So in the spite of apartheid and all of those dynamics, there is a thriving black middle class in South Africa. And I was like, oh, no, I'm getting ready to go to South Africa and write about that. So when people in America talk about the middle class, you're, you're talking about South Africa. They're going to have to clarify about which part of South Africa you're talking about, because not everybody, in them, not all of them are poor. But the work that I'm doing in America is really looking at people that are single and living alone in the black middle class and what are some of the implications in that. Because we know that marriage rates have changed for all racial and ethnic groups and they're way more pronounced for blacks. So blacks are getting married less than other racial and ethnic groups. But what are the consequences? So you still have a thriving black middle class, but it looks very different. There's a compositional shift away from married couples to young black professionals who aren't married and don't have any children. Now, mm-hmm. the question becomes, why aren't single people getting married? And so when anybody asks, why aren't you getting married? I think the most, th- the, the most appropriate responsibility to ask them is like, what do you mean by that? I've noticed that when people say something that's racist, sexist, homophobic, or classist, I always be like, well, what do you mean by that? So you're talking about, first of all, you ask me a very personal question. You know, one, it's like, we don't ask married people, how's your sex life? <laughs> but 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 as a single person, our dating life is is, is public public consumption, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two, it's like, what do you mean by that? There are structural forces out there that don't that are preventing black women from black women in particular from getting married. 
if we think like there's this sex ratio imbalance, there aren't enough black men if you'd want to marry on the same educational level as there are black women. That's some structural forces. So you're not trying to talk, use indiv- structural forces to talk about my individual behavior. I'm not having a problem with that. So when someone says, what do you, why aren't you married? Or why are you still single? Like, what do you mean by that? And keep pushing them until they say, okay, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question. Mm-hmm. But we always try to come up, we always try to pivot and come up with a really good answer as to why we're single. But like, no, it's not on us. The onus should not be on us to have to answer that question because there are structural forces that are preventing some people from getting married. And we need to acknowledge that. So what do you mean by that? It's a good thing. And then understand why you're getting married. One of the things that people have been joking about is they're saying like, oh, we're going to have so many babies that are going to be named COVID or Rona during this time. What we know is that during times of distress, fertility rates actually go down. Especially with this long, it's long-term distress. Fertility rates go down. If it's a short, like little, like storm or something, there's an end in sight. Yeah, we might see an uptick in fertility. During this time, fertility rates go down. You're gonna see a lot of people that are going to be getting divorced because what has happened now is that you've pushed into that, you're pushed inside, and you're having to spend 24 hours with this person. You're like, okay, I've I fell into these social forces of needing to get married, but I realize I don't like the person that I'm with. The worst thing you can be, I think, the worst thing to be is be like married but alone. I'd rather be alone than, than be with someone and wish that I was alone. But we have to understand why we're getting married. Is this just one of the, is this one of the stations on the, on the life course that we're supposed to engage in? Or is there really a substantive reason why you're getting into this relationship? I am not pro, I'm not an, uh, anti-marriage. And people are like, Dr. Marshall, you're anti-marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I'm like, understand why you're doing it. And understand that there's a demographic out there that are just not going to get married. But that doesn't mean that they aren't happy, whole, and aren't contributing to society. So when we talk about black middle class, class let's also talk about those that are single and living alone they're just as important to the group as um those that are married with children mm-hmm. okay that's all yeah and those those are the articles i was like oh let me read more because <laughs> that's that's the work i'm interested in it's just personal and again that's one of the primary reasons that i reached out to you because you have such a comprehensive uh just outlook on black middle class so we have five minutes and i just want to ask not one last question, but just kind of get closing thoughts on we talk we've talked about just the experiences, but what are just some positive things that you feel about being a black middle class woman within this nation? The agency Everything. I have, yeah, like I, you know, I like like I think Brandy said earlier that you know sometimes she just throws her weight around. So when I feel like it, I do. If I want to go travel, I can. I don't have to ask permission. I don't have to go looking for no funds, it's sitting right there. So I like the flexibility of being a black middle caste woman. I like to be a chameleon and move in and out of spaces um, and be whoever I wanna be. You know, If I wanna be a girl from the block, I can. If I wanna be a woman in the boardroom, I can. If I wanna be you know, on the golf course, I can. You know, So I just love that freedom of being able to move in and out of spaces um, without being inhibited, basically. I, I think that is absolutely perfect. I think that flexibility has been, um, it's been amazing. And I think that the, being able to continue to carry it on, you know, um, has been um, has been something that I um, have loved to give my children, you know, again, being from middle class but being able to continue, because that doesn't always happen. You know, like I know that there is, typically it does, but it doesn't always happen, but being able to kind of continue um, uh, uh, to grant my children access to even greater things that than I was able, you know, to have just because of, you know, ignorance or just, you know, people not wanting to do it or whatever, seeking out different opportunities for them um, has been, you know, absolutely amazing. Um, but I think also the, like, 
in the agency, like talking uh, to others as well, like, talking to the students about what they um, are interested, talking to my students about what they're interested in and kind of helping guide them on the paths that could get there. So even in, in having the credentials um, or at least the trust from the students, I think that a lot of that has to do with my education, but my education, of course, catapults me into um, into this this black middle class. So I think just echoing what Tiffany said, just the flexibility to to do the things that I want to do, to do all the things that I need to do, and then a lot of the things that I want to do for both myself and um, my progeny is is wonderful. Uh, I, I echo what's already been said. For me, I uh, what I like most about being a black middle class woman is that I'm showing my students how you can do it. You can, there's many different ways that you can do it. I make sure everybody knows I failed out of college, didn't get kicked out, but was not failed out of college. I make sure they know that I got back into college. I got a PhD. I was able to do a Fulbright Scholar in South Africa. I was like first black female demographer tenured in the sociology department at the University of Maryland, hopefully soon to be uh, a full professor there. So I show my students that you can do it any kind of way to get there and also like be kind of like who you are in some kind of ways now that's a politically correct um statement the non-politically correct statement i also am very petty i admit that i admit that i admit that so in my pettiness <laughs> so in my pettiness i you know sometimes i'll have like a real quiet disposition and i love to like dispel stereotypes right mm -hmm. so uh I, I think it's great that i'm not, you know people might, might be unassuming about me i'm in the grocery store i'm just talking and, da, 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 and somebody says something i'm like now i gotta stop now i gotta start dropping some of my pedigree I'm like i am actually a university professor i am actually a business owner i actually do own five properties i actually do have a five million dollar inheritance and i gotta keep going on and on with my pedigree i was like and i like the pettiness because i was like see what you have done is that you stereotyped me you have put me in a box and you have pigeonholed me i dispelled your box broke it up lit it on fire now you sit with that because i'm done okay okay <laughs> i love the pettiness i love the pettiness <laughs> that's a mic drop and i yeah. think that's a great way to end everybody you heard it from from chris dr chris marsh don't come for her and don't come for any of the ladies on this podcast so thank you all for joining uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was just kind of like food for the soul on a Thursday morning. So again, I just want to say thank you. And I think that's a wrap. What questions or comments do you have for us about being a woman in the black middle class? Email us your thoughts as a voice memo or a note at blacklivestexaspodcast at gmail.com. We will be releasing a special episode next week about policing in schools and how it disproportionately affects black students. So make sure you have subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Help us reach more listeners by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with your community. Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. It is produced and hosted by me, Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe with additional production and editing by Mariah Gossett. Our music is by Upper Reality. Until next time, see you soon.